Welcome to the Life Community Church Podcast. We are so excited and thankful you've decided to join us. We have a very special message for you today that we pray blesses you. I've been trying to figure out some kind of, you know, special walk, but I can't, I can't figure out really what it is, you know, so I need somebody to teach me, so. Johnny says he'll teach you, which means I'll have to wear small shirts. <laughs> so how you doing? So we're talking about gospel culture, and today we're going to talk about those who call evil good and good evil. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, woe to those who call good evil and who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. So today we're in a dilemma. Who can you believe? Both from the right and left, the sheer amount of media that we have access to exhausts us. It overwhelms us. You think about in medieval times, they say that a person would get uh, the amount of new information they would get in a lifetime would be the amount of news in a newspaper, one daily newspaper that was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Now, none of y'all get newspapers anymore. Let me see. Does anybody actually get a newspaper? Thank you. (laughs) Tina wants to, but I won't let her because it's too expensive. She really loves having a newspaper, but I was like, no, we're not spending. It's right here. It's the same stories, you know. So anyway, uh, so now we're just bombarded with all kinds of, we, we, they say we make 35,000 decisions a day. So just the sheer volume of information that is bombarding us is amazing. From TV, although most of you don't get news from TV anymore, uh, the internet, most of you get your news from the internet, 48% of us get our news from social media, which is just a bit scary when you think about it because we've learned, you know, that... They don't tell the truth. There are those that call evil good and good evil. So I want to talk today about this, what's happening. Uh, we're living in a world that's filled with, with propaganda, and it's, it's from both sides. It's, it's from everywhere. Nobody's really telling the truth. They tell a version of the truth, a part of the truth, or some of the truth. And the purpose of that propaganda is to reshape people's view of reality by reimagining reality, creating a new, new reality. And it's do that by appealing to human desires and using covert deception. In other words, it's not, it's not obvious. You don't see it, but it's always there. It's like we're swimming in it. We're swimming in a sea of deception. So how are we going to not drown in it? Hugh Trevor report in his book, Final Entries, 1945, is a book about the diaries of Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels was Hitler's propaganda minister. Here's what he said. Arguments must therefore be crude, clear, and forcible, and appeal to emotions and instincts, not to the intellect. Because it's more about feelings than truth. Truth was unimportant, 
and entirely subordinate to the tactics and psychology, but convenient lies must always be made credible. So all of us, conservative, liberal, Christian, non-Christian, are susceptible to this propaganda because we sometimes listen with our feelings more than with our minds. If you remember several uh, months ago, we talked about Craig Groeschel's book, uh, Winning the War in the Mind. And in that book, he talks about a cognitive bias. We all look through our lives, look, see reality through a set of lenses that predetermine our perspective. And we end up finding the information that we're looking for. This is a cognitive bias. When there's, we end up finding what we're looking for. Kind of like a vulture looks for one kind of food and a hummingbird looks for another kind of food. They, they find what they're looking for. So this, this, is, this is a cognitive bias, and it's what happens to de- define it, it's a mistaken reasoning based on personal experience or preference. So it's a mental filter. You're seeing the world through, not through truth, but through your experience. And we all have this. We all deal with this. That, you know, so if you grew up in the context with a, that a lot of bad things happened to you, or you had a rough life, a bad life, you may filter your life through that lens and view what's happening in your life today inaccurately. Even when things aren't bad, you may still see them through a lens of being bad. Or if you grew up around abusive men or an abusive father, you might see all men as abusive because of what happened to you. You might even marry an abusive man because you might believe that's the only kind there is. Have you ever noticed that sometimes people repeat things in their life? You think, why would they, you know, their dad, their father, their parents were abuser, they marry an abuser, or their dad was an alcoholic, their parents were alcoholics, they ended up marrying alcoholics. Why, why would they do that? Because that's the lens of normalcy to them. And so it looks normal. Uh, if you grew up around a, an emotionally manipulative, manipulative mother, you might see all women as controlling or manipulative because of what happened to you. Maybe you had parents uh, that said bad things about wealthy people or bad things about poor people, but maybe they said bad things about wealthy people. Uh, they, you know, wealthy people, they think they're all that. I mean, I often make, I often make comments, like I do make comments about that, that I feel like that people in Heath drive like heathens. <laughs> and that when, you get, when, you, when you're driving around people that are wealthy, they drive privileged. It's like, get out of my way because I'm more important than you. I've got a fancy car, get out of my way. So I've taught my kids probably this cognitive bias. Uh, so wealthy people think they're all that, like, you know, you need to get out of the way for me. So if you then begin to have some wealth or prosperity in your own life and you've, you were raised where it was wrong, then you might feel shame about that. You might feel guilty. Maybe you grew up in a racist environment where people were judged by their skin color, black, white, or brown, country of origin. So if you were raised in a racist environment, 
your filter shapes how you see your life. If you change the filter, it often changes how you feel. That's a cognitive bias. Again, the definition. A mistaken reasoning based on personal experience or preference. A mental filter. That's why two people can react differently to the exact same thing happening. I was talking one day to, to uh, two women that were, were sisters of uh, the same family. They were about two years apart. And the older one said, isn't it a shame that dad was never at home? And the younger sister said, what? I, thought, I feel like dad was home all the time. Now, what was the difference? Now, there could have been a change in some time in two-year change, but probably in reality, it was perception. It, it was how they perceived reality, the lens that they saw life through. And two people can look at the same thing and see it differently. The, the great example of that is when Moses sent 12 people to spy out the land of Israel. So he sent 12, 10 came back and said, oh, it's a great land, it's a wonderful land, we better not go there, they'll kill us. God's promised it to us, it's a good thing, but you know, it's a, it's a land that devours its inhabitants. It's like, well, then why are they there? And we say, that's not reasonable, that's feeling oriented. And, said, and they said, we, we saw ourselves as grasshoppers in their eyes. Their view of themselves was based on their feelings. But two of the spies, Jacob, not Jacob, Joshua and Caleb, they viewed it differently. They were viewing it through the lens of not their slavery in Egypt and the failure of their past. They were viewing it from their experience with God, from their deliverance. They'd seen God deliver them from slavery in Egypt, and they'd seen God defeat the armies of Egypt, and they had seen God feed them with manna from heaven, and they had seen God provide water for them out of a rock. In other words, they had seen divine provision. They could actually look out of their tent and see the, present, the visible presence of God. So they said, it's, hey, guys, yes, it is a great land, but hey, God's going to fight for us. God's going to be with us. So their perspective was based on what their experience had been. We tend to listen to people who agree with us because did you notice that the 10 didn't change their mind and, they weren't, and the two weren't convinced by the 10 and the 10 weren't convinced by the two. We tend to listen to people who agree with us and we shun people who disagree with us. We don't listen. That's why, that's why propaganda is so dangerous because it appeals to the emotions and as such, it, it often avoids a factual assessment of reality. We're not really looking at reality. Uh, so I'm going to talk about three ways. There's more than, but I can't talk more than three. So we're going to talk about three. Today we're going to talk about three ways. We may talk about more next week, or we may talk about something totally different. Who knows? Uh, so three ways language is manipulated in propaganda. Three ways language is manipulated. Number one, all political campaigns, uh, number one, is to use evocative slogans, the use of evocative slogans. All political campaigns, liberal, conservative, doesn't matter, 
try to come up with a slogan that's memorable and evokes dedication. Make America great again. That's a good slogan. Uh, build back better. That's, it's a good slogan. Noam Chomsky said, a revolution can be brought about only when you have a slogan that's hard to speak against. So think about it. So it's like, who doesn't want to make America great again? Right? And who, I mean, if you're going to build back, build back better. May cost several trillion dollars, but do it anyway. Uh, you know, perhaps the most effective slogan of our day, without a doubt, is Black Lives Matter. Black lives do matter. And when we say that, we don't have to qualify that by saying, well, black lives matter, all lives matter. We can just say black lives matter because they're important. We, we say pre-born babies matter. We don't have to qualify that and say, well, yeah, every other baby matters too. Right? So black lives matter. So, and that's, that's a good slogan. And Black Lives Matter was about justice for black people. Every Christian should want justice and an end to the foolish practice of judging someone by the .0012 difference in us, the amount of melanin in our skin. Right? We should, we should all want... We, we should all want and believe that black lives are important. There should be justice for every black person in America. But there's a problem. Black Lives Matter represents two different things. First of all, and a lot of us, I, I'm telling you, I jumped on the Black Lives Matter ba banner because I have, not only, I was born a racist, I grew up a racist, I came to Christ, Christ dealt with the racism in me. I have preached against and endeavored I've made a lot of people mad in the last 40 years of my ministry preaching against racism. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm continuing that trend today. Uh, but, so I believe, I believe that black lives matter. But the problem is, black li that slogan represents two different things. One is, is a movement that is concerned with the abuses and injustices of racism. That's a good thing. And I'm for that. But Black Lives Matter, we came to find out later, is also an organization. It's the name of an organization. And that organization, the roots of that organization, is Marxist. They have a Marxist ideology. We talked about Marxism last week. And they also are in favor of the destruction of the nuclear family, in favor of... In fa in, in favor of queer families. Now, to me, that's a bad thing. That's a wrong thing. That's a wrong thinking. That's the wrong direction. That's what propaganda does. Propaganda says one thing. See, I believe Black Lives Matter, the movement, is important. I believe Black Lives Matter, the organization, is not. So we have to understand what's being said. Prop propaganda is used to say one thing but really mean another. When, when Hitler starved children, he called it putting them on a low-calorie diet. Really, really low-calorie diet. He called killing Jews. They didn't call it killing Jews. That's a little too obvious, right? Was cleansing the land. 
Propaganda is telling people what they want to hear, then giving them what they want them to have. You, you tell them what they want to hear, but then you really give them what you want them to have, not what they want to have. Okay. Number two, propaganda doesn't just use slogans, uh, evocative slogans, but it uses language to create reality. We're experiencing this a lot today. George Orwell wrote in his book, 1984, about a dystopian future that was coming in 1984. Uh, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. In the book that Mr. Winston was expected, Mr. Winston, the character was expected to say that two plus two equals five. It was not so much an attempt to convince him of this, but rather to get him accustomed to speaking lies and doubting his own judgment. If he could speak lies, he could live a lie. During the riots after the death of George Floyd, news reports with burning cars and burning buildings and houses were described as largely peaceful. Well, not if it's your business, not if it's your car, not if it's your house. See, the left is attempting to use words to reorder reality when they tell us that man you see competing in sports is actually a woman. Close your eyes to the biological reality. Reject common sense and just agree that he is a woman. After all, he said he's a woman. So he must be a woman. There's actually even people who believe they're felines and have had whiskers installed in their skin. I mean, there's a lot of different beliefs out there. But listen, the World Athletics Organization is a governing body for, for athletics, and they said this. World Athletics, a governing body, has come around to common sense. The organization said it decided to prioritize fairness and the integrity of the female competition before inclusion. Decisions are always difficult when they involve conflicting needs and the rights between different groups, but we continue to take the view that we must maintain fairness to female athletes above all other consideration, said World Athletes President Sebastian Coe. Well done, right? So, I don't understand. Yes, I'm not saying that trans people have no rights. I'm saying, but their rights shouldn't supersede every other woman's rights. That it's men getting to step to the head of the line again. We will say, you know, men get to be first in everything. What about women? So then, men get to step. Trans women, men as women get to move not get to move ahead and in a superior rights position they have more rights than women that's not clear thinking it's not common sense i'm not saying that transgender people should have no place to compete if they want to compete let them compete martina navratilova I mean, great tennis player, lesbian tennis player, came out and said she was in favor of what the World Athletics Organization has said because it's unfair to women 
for trans women to compete in the same arena. Let them compete. If they want to compete, let them compete in their own category. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, that's the problem. That's the problem. It makes sense. <laughs> Number three, they want to use words to suppress debate. Many colleges, universities, and now workplaces, or we almost should call them woke places, uh, <laughs> have policies narrowing the realm of permissible speech, reducing students and employees to silence. One misstep, and you could lose your job or your scholarship. In other words, if you, if you call a, uh, a she, an it, or a him, or her, if you say the, if you call somebody the wrong, wrong pronoun, you can misstep, you can mess up. Edwin Lutzer, in his book, No Reason to Hide, a great book about all of this stuff that I've, I've read, and I would recommend you read it. He, he's talking about, he says, a dentist friend of his had, un, had to undergo an online implicit bias training seminar that emphasized the need to reduce barriers and disparities when it came to matters such as gender identity sexual orientation, religion, and the like. At the end of the session, the participants were invited to ask questions or make comments, and the dentist typed this question. I don't require my Muslim patients to say that, they're, that they think it's good that I eat bacon. I don't require my atheist, atheist patients to say that I, they think it's good that I believe in God. I don't require my LGBTQ patients to say that they think it is good that I have biblical Christian values. Why do I have to affirm a patient's LGBTQ lifestyle? I mean, why not just give them good dentistry, right? The answer he got back was LGBTQ sexuality is central to their identity. It's very hurtful and can cause great distress when we don't affirm LGBTQ people. They also said that there could be legal repercussions for those who don't provide such affirmations. It wasn't enough to be a good dentist. Treat all patients with equal respect and care. He's expected to give special affirmations to one group. And we know, if you remember last week, if you were here last week, what, what trans people identify is that when, when the violence took place in, in Nashville at the Covenant Presbyterian Church, then trans uh, bloggers and stuff came out. They consider, so I, I read a blog that said pastors of churches are promoting violence against trans people. I, I, I've never heard anybody in the Christian stuff things promote violence, but, but the view of violence is to say that it's wrong. That's, to them, that's murderous violence, to disagree. Now, they can, just, they can tell your Christianity is, you're crazy as a bed bug, and that's okay, but you can't disagree. So that's, that's the issue. That's the propaganda. So universities are even, you know, universities, which is a hotbed for propaganda, where they take young people often that have grown up in a Christian church and try to deconstruct them, de deconstruct their belief system to turn them into atheists if possible. Uh, universities are, are big about this nowadays. Uh, universities are printing out lists of banned words. Brandeis University's list included picnic, 
trigger warning, which is a word to describe someone might be triggered by a banned word, which is interesting. Rule of thumb, freshman, you know, because that's oppressive. If you're a senior and you call somebody a freshman, you're putting them in their place, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's like, that's, that's why you're doing it. Uh, victim, survivor, addict, disabled person, policeman. I guess maybe police person is the correct term. I don't know. At least goes on. The Cato Institute, Institute research found that in students ages 13 to 22, so middle school to college, they have stopped speaking up in classroom because of the prevailing atmosphere of intolerance and political correctness. So your students, you students, are increasingly uh, shot down if you don't agree with the narrative that's out there that we're supposed to all agree to. So propaganda then shames those. If you disagree, you get shamed. Do you oppose abortion? You hate women. You're a woman hater. Do you, are you opposed to same-sex marriage? You're a bigot. If you oppose radical Islam, you're Islamophobic. If you believe that COVID-19 was genetically engineered virus that originated in Wuhan, China, we're going to ban you off of Twitter and you are xenophobic. Yeah, they know how to do it. So what do we do? How do we deal with this? So we're, we're, swimming, we're, we're, we're swimming in an ocean of lies, right? And we need to recognize that. We're swimming in an ocean of lies. So h- how do we deal with that? How do we respond to it? So um, I said this last week, I'm going to say it again. We must be fully committed to God's word. There is a source of truth that we believe God's word is truth. Your word's a lamp unto my feet. We need to know God's word. We need to hide his word in our heart. Because we don't know, as, these, as the world is changing so rapidly, how long we're going to have access to the Word of God. So we need, we need to know what we believe about the Word of God. We need to be committed to it. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus said this, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive... Because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to be in you as a believer. And as a believer, the Holy Spirit's going to lead you into truth. But the world can't receive it. He said the world can't receive that truth. Why? Because they are in allegiance with the father of lies. And until that allegiance is broken through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, until that allegiance with the enemy of God is broken, they cannot, they will continue to be deceived. They will continue to walk in darkness. They will continue to not be able to determine what truth is because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The world can't receive it, but we can. And really, the only way to know, to recognize the counterfeit is to know the truth. We need to immerse ourselves so much in the truth that when we see a lie, it stands out. In our children's church, we use Bible bucks. Bible bucks are not... Bible bucks are not the same as real bucks. You know why we know? 
because we know what a real buck looks like. Here, I've even got a, I've got a five. This is unbelievable. I have cash in my wallet. Okay? Now, I really like the way that looks, but it's not a real $5 bill, is it? Why do we know? Because you've handled enough of these that you know, the, you know what's real and what's not. Almost, almost. In the same way is true, if we'll handle the word of God, we'll be able to determine what is truth. Proverbs 23, 23 says, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. I want to tell you a story about Ahab and Jehoshaphat and Micaiah the prophet. Ahab, you know that king of Israel that uh, was married to Jezebel? Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, the southern territory of Israel. Israel was the northern kingdom, 10 tribes. Judah was the two tribes uh, in southern Israel. So there was a division there, and Jehoshaphat made, key, made peace with Ahab because the, the northern and southern kingdoms had been at war. And Jehoshaphat made peace, and he's visiting with Ahab, and Ahab says to him, listen, you know that Romath... Ramoth, Gilead, uh, belongs to Israel, is now being controlled by the king of Aram. So listen, uh, I want you to join with me, and let's go, get that, let's go get that territory back. And Jehoshaphat says, yeah, my people are your people. My horses are your horses. That's a good idea. Let's do it. He said, but first, but first let's, uh, let's inquire of the Lord. Let's see what the Lord says about it. So Ahab brings in 400 prophets of Baal. And he asks them, what, should we go to battle with the king of Aram to release Ramoth Gilead? And, and so all the foreign prophets, they, you know, they say, yes, absolutely, you'll be victorious. You'll have, a great, you'll have a great victory. You should go up. You absolutely should go up. And so Jehoshaphat says, yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Good to hear from those guys. You know, good to hear a good word, but is there a prophet of the Lord? You know, is there a prophet of the Lord God of Israel? He said, yeah, yeah, there's one, but he doesn't like me. So, and Joshua says, well, I hate to hear that. He's like, why didn't he like you? He said, well, he always speaks evil against me. He says, well, you think we could hear what he has to say? <laughs> and so... Ahab sends for Micaiah, and Micaiah, when the messenger gets to Micaiah, he says, now listen, listen, the king's sending for you. He's got a question to ask you about whether we should go to battle or not. And listen, all the other prophets have said, go to battle. It's, you're going to have a great victory. So just agree and go along, okay? Just go along with everybody else. So, and Micah goes, and he gets there, and he's before Ahab, and Ahab says, so what does the Lord have to say? And, and Micah says, well, Micaiah says, it'll, it'll, it's fine. Just go ahead and go to battle. You'll be victorious. And Ahab recognizes that he's, he's not being truthful. He says, haven't I told you to never always tell me what the Lord says, regardless of what it is? So he says, okay, you're going to die. You're going to die. So then Ahab says, see, I told you. He always prophesies evil against me. So, and Micaiah says, I, you know, I can't help it. This is what the Lord says. The Lord says, you're going to die. So Ahab gets so angry 
that he says, listen, take him back and put him in prison and put him on a starvation diet of bread and water. So they decide to go to battle. But, but Ahab's going to be smart. He's going to trick the Lord. So he goes to battle, and he doesn't wear his, his kingly garments. He puts on a disguise, and he goes to battle. And he, he has Jehoshaphat put on really pretentious robes so that they'll, they'll actually try to kill him instead. Jehoshaphat kind of goes along with it. And so <laughs> they start chasing Jehoshaphat, you know, and he's like, no, I'm not the king, you know. He's over there. And they says, a soldier on the other side randomly just shoots his sword in the air in the enemy, and it pierces between the joint of the armor this random coincidental wound hits Ahab and kills him. So the moral of that story is there's a consequence to the truth. There was a consequence because Ahab and Jehoshaphat did not pay attention to the word of the Lord, but believed instead what they knew to be a lie. They tried to convince themselves with a lie. And so Ahab died. And Micaiah, for speaking the truth, was put in prison. There was a consequence. And we don't know, the story ends that Ahab dies that's the end of First Kings. We don't know whatever happened to Micaiah. We don't know if he died in prison. We don't know if they let him out. But there, there, there was a consequence, and the consequence could have been that he actually ended up dying in prison. Sometimes, if we're going to speak the truth, there's going to be consequences to the truth. We're, you're at a, we're at a place where if you tell the truth, you may lose your job. If you work for a big company that's woke school district that's enacted some policies, police department, any number of corporations, you could inadvertently just stand for the truth and say, oh, I can't do that. You see, you know what, the, you know what they, I've told you this before, you know how they got Christians in Rome? It's a little thing. When they do business with the government, with the Roman government, went in to pay their taxes, went and get register a new car, you know. They bought a boat or something. They had to go get a title. When they had to do civil business, to conduct that business, they'd go into the, the office of whoever's in charge of that department, and as they conducted their business, they'd say, hey, we need you to do something. Just take a little pinch of this incense right here and throw it on the fire and say Caesar is Lord because we got to see what your, where your allegiance lies. And the Christians were hung on the horns of a dilemma because they believed that Caesar was Caesar. He was the head of the Roman government. 
but they believed that Jesus was Lord. So just that act, I, in conscience, Christians would say, I, I can't do I'll say that Caesar is king, Caesar is the head of the government. I can't say that Caesar is Lord. I can only say that Jesus is Lord. There, sometimes they would be killed on the spot. Sometimes they might just be put in prison. Sometimes they'd be stripped of everything they had, all the property they had. They may be stripped of their children. But there was a consequence to the truth. There's often a consequence to the truth. And, and we, we have to be ready for that. Jesus said this. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. How do we live in this world? We're to love our enemies. Bless those who curse us. And pray for those who mistreat us. You know what that takes? That takes the Word of God activated in our lives in such a way. It takes the Holy Spirit working through us that we're able to love lost people, love deceived people. Our, our goal is not to go out and shame and argue and belittle and fight and quarrel. Our, our goal is to declare the good news of Jesus Christ because the world cannot receive truth. The world cannot receive truth until they've been set free from the father of lies. So that's our challenge. Buy truth and don't sell it. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song together, and then we'll pray at the end. This has been the Life Community Church Podcast. Thank you for listening.